Welcome to another episode of Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, produced in association with Caffeine Nights Publishing, where we chat with significant people working in television, behind the scenes, also in show business, whose voices and stories are never usually heard. And we're going international to Spain, in fact, because our guest this time is a high profile multi-camera director who for much of his long career, has been associated with the BBC's top stand-up comedy showcase, Live at the Apollo. In that time, he's also directed the long-running BBC topical news panel show, Have I Got News For You? And if you look at the director credits at the end of comedy specials starring Lee Mack, Dara O'Brien, Jason Manford, John Bishop, Frank Skinner and Russell Brand it'll soon become apparent that this gentleman has worked with every major comic of the last 30 years. Before that, he was involved in all manner of high-rating shows at the BBC and at London Weekend Television. And there's more. An accomplished guitarist and a singer-songwriter in his own right, he's about to take his five-piece band out on a 10-date tour of the south of England with his show Fire and Rain and American Pie. So it's an enormous joy to welcome the infuriatingly talented Mr. Paul Wheeler. <laughs> um, thank you. Well, thank you, Colin. That's quite an introduction. It's lovely to be here. Um, I have to say, I can only bow to talking infuriatingly talented know that I'm nothing alongside the people that I've worked with and for. They are <laughs> yeah. on my humble head. I guess. But as the director, you yeah. make them look good. Um, and so, so basically, it's television and music. They're your passions. Um, so right from the get-go, did you anticipating? Did you anticipate spending a, a highly successful life working in television? Was that part of the master plan, or were you more inclined Absolutely to music? Absolutely not. Uh, I think one thing that <laughs> would come out of this conversation for sure is I never had any master plan there was no career plan there was no i mean i you know i grew up in a you know one would say a very working class family my dad was a barge builder my mum worked in woolworths mm. um <laughs> uh the idea of even working on a television thing i mean that was just something glamorous that popped up on a, a tiny blurry screen on <laughs> we used to sit and watch together yeah um so no uh, I, I'm very, very much a go with the flow kind of a guy, and it, mm. it, 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 somewhere along the way, it came to me, which I'm sure we'll we'll get to. Um, yeah. So, was the music really was was your first love? I suppose, really. Yeah, I mean, I mean there was no, in, there were no instruments in our house um, when I was young, but. Um, uh, I, I basically I passed eleven plus, and so I was like a working class kid that got into grammar school, and mm. that was a massive thing for me. So anyway, at grammar school, uh, a, a teacher heard me singing in the choir, and said, "Oh, you've obviously got a good ear, so you should learn an instrument." And they took me to a cupboard, <laughs> and of course, all the smaller instruments had already gone—the mm. flutes, the clarinets, and the the, the violins—and the one thing left in this cupboard was a, was a bassoon. <laughs> Leaning against the corner, which yes. and I'll be absolutely honest with you, because of my, my I knew nothing about orchestras, so I didn't even know what this was. But they said, "Hey, you know, <laughs> have a go at this, have a crack at that." So there I was, <laughs> condemned to lug this massive, sort of like a briefcase with five bits of wood in it, <laughs> uh, up and down to grammar school every day, along with my rugby kit in the other hand and my <laughs> and my uh, homework over my shoulder, and um, so I plugged away at that. But I did okay on it for five, six years. And then, um, of course, I had to give it back. Nowhere I could afford to buy a bassoon. That's even if I'd wanted to carry on. With <laughs> um, and I did. And I, I, by then, I'd been listening to a lot of the songs that are in this the show that I've now, it's almost like a lifetime's process to come to Fire and Rain and American Pie. Um, and I, uh, I knew I wanted to learn some of these tunes by, you know, James Taylor, Carol King, Simon Garfunkel. Um, Don McLean, you know, the, the time that these were all around when I was 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. But I didn't have a guitar until I was 16. I I did that line from American Pie. There's a line at the beginning of American Pie that says, February made me shiver, 
With every paper I delivered, bad news on the doorstep, I couldn't take one more step. So basically, I did a paper round for a wow. whole winter when I was about 16 years old. And um, I saved up 10 quid to buy my first guitar. Oh. That was the start of that. But I was never, ever considered or considered it a possibility as a as a job. Hmm. I was never brave enough or it's just not on my radar that, that you could actually earn a living out of, yeah. out of music. So I, yeah. So, so, that, so you went to grammar school, I guess you passed, you passed your own plus, got your A levels, O levels and whatever. So yeah. then applied to the BBC from school. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, basically I got <laughs> being an all boys grammar school and I was a bit of an all rounder. Hmm. Uh, there was no guidance in those days. So I, if you were a boy and you didn't know what you wanted to do, which I didn't, they said, I'll oh, do science, just do science. So, so I ended up, I find myself doing a, a physics degree at Imperial College, um, <laughs> which as you can imagine has come in extremely <laughs> handy in the world of television, comedy and music. <laughs> so anyway, I, it, I mean, I was a complete fish out of water. I, I'm, I'm absolutely not meant to be a physicist. I blagged my way to a lower second. And from the end of university, um, I applied to 11 jobs, as I remember. I remember there was 11. I don't know why I remember that figure so clearly. because the Mainly because the first 10 rejected me out of hand. They were all manner of different things. I had no idea. And the 11th one was a thing called the BBC Studio Managers Training Scheme, which um, as I was reading this, it popped up on a thing and a friend of a friend sort of nudged me about it. They said, actually, BBC like people like you that they like their sport, they like their music, they like a bit of current affairs, they interested in lots of things um and i thought oh, that that might be a laugh so i gave it a go and I, I got into this this radio studio managers training yeah um 1957 1978 oh mm. that's that when i started at the bbc yeah so what happens do you do you send off your application and you, what you're invited along for interview or what yeah, 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 that you filled in a, it was just a normal process, you fill in a big form, I, I, again, because I've been rejected from 10 other things, I, I never expected to hear anything back, but um, a letter came back um, and invited me in, so I had a chat, and it actually, I remember, the, don't remember much about the chat, but I know it did, it did go the direction I would have liked, that it, it didn't sort of zoom in on my physics and degree and all that, it, it, it it was very broad. Mm. And so I was able to get across that, you know, that all these different things I, I love to do and enjoy doing. And I think that helped. That helped get me in. <laughs> Plus the fact, the only thing that physics gave was actually having a degree. At that point, the BBC generally were recruiting people with, with kind of proper degrees, I would say. Yeah, and I suppose what, at that what, time it was very kind of university orientated, Oxbridge and it was that malarkey. There were there were a lot of uh, Oxbridge people on my course when I started. Um, and, and studio management that I guess I'm guessing that's radio. Being it's radio. Crazy. That was so that was radio. Yeah. So you you just learn uh, you plugging in microphones, playing in records, sound effects. Um, all the stuff that goes with different types of radio shows and radio dramas. Um, I loved it. I loved it. It was what was wonderful about it right, right at the beginning is after that first six weeks, which you did in what is now the Langham Hotel. It was the training ground of BBC Radio then. The BBC still owned what is known as the Langham Building, just across the road from Broadcasting House. And... Um, <laughs> The first job I did, you were, you were given a thing called spot effects. It was called spot effects. But these days in the film industry, it's kind of known as Foley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that right? Where you, yeah. you actually are you're knocking on doors and you're yeah. clinking like, teacups and, and that sort of thing. Named after and a it, sound effects bloke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is that what? Oh, it's okay. I did, yeah. I never, I never heard the word Foley back then, but we were, we were just these junior spot effects uh, guys and girls. Um, and I remember thinking, you know what, this is as good as it gets. I loved it. It was just, and so there I was with a, a degree in physics doing this hmm. 
for my for a living and i thought that's it <laughs> Co coconut shells for horses who is an unbottled yeah. doors and yeah i had a little tray of gravel with a coconut shell i had that it, it's a but nevertheless it's a responsible job isn't it if you're doing that in a comedy show or more particularly a drama indeed it is yeah it, it is and and um because you're literally standing there with the same script in front of you as the you know these shakespearean actors and actresses and you know, some of them are quite well-known performers. Yeah. And um, so there is a responsibility. Yeah, you've got to get the timing of this right. It's got to be the right sound to start with, and you've got to get it in the right place. Yeah. And um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was quite a job. I suppose your, your musical uh, skill came in handy with timing and stuff like that. And then what I'm wondering is, did you ever think with this interest in music that you had and this musical ability, you might want to become a broadcaster and maybe become a DJ at the BBC? No, 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 no. Again, that, that was never on my, um, never on my radar. Just that never crossed my mind. Um, actually, something, something that really put pay to that, I should explain, was that the when we joined, as I said, we, we were a lot, of, a lot of my people from universities, in particular Oxford and Cambridge, and of course, they had the voices, which even now my voice is my voice has poshed up a bit over the years. <laughs> this is as posh as it gets, <laughs> but but it was definitely not posh back then. Um, I had what because only we'd be called a Brentford accent. And uh, hey, come on, you bees! I'm still supporting. We're living the dream. I won't go off into the Brentford story, but the <laughs> um, the, the, the I mean, we, the, everyone had a voice test when you joined the BBC in that first week, and it took this form, you, 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 they put a piece of news in front of you, a paragraph of a story from, from what was going on at the time, and everyone had to sit down in a mic booth and start reading this story. The Oxford and Cambridge people usually got to the end of the paragraph and some of them were ushered away for proper voice training, potentially become announcers and DJs and whatever. I actually got about as far as, I think I got six or seven words into the first <laughs> sentence. And then the talk back mic came. So, okay, Paul, that'll do. Thanks, mate. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think that even if I had had any, um, and got after any possibilities of being um, sort of a, <laughs> A and Mike got on camera, a broadcaster, <laughs> kind. It, that was it ended right there. What other sort of shows then would you have been working on uh, in your time as a studio manager at BBC Radio? Yeah, what, what you did, what you did, you you did a combination of things. It was either the, the sound effects on dramas. I remember there was something called Wagoner's Walk. Oh, soap opera. <laughs> it like, yeah, it was like the Archers, but but another type, another soap opera. Um, I did some used to play in some of the records for Pete Murray when he was doing his, his oh, show. Pete Murray's um, open house. There, yeah, there was various bits and bobs I did. Um, and just before the end, I only did this for it was two, wasn't even quite three years. I was doing this because you also worked day and night on the external language services at Bush House, which the BBC broadcast all over the world. Yeah, you know, I don't know if they still do, but it was 38 languages as well as the 24-hour English World Service, mm. and so we did a lot of that as well as part of our schedule. Really fascinating, fascinating uh, time. Not bad. Yeah, I remember, I was only you know I was between 21 and 23 then, so it was it was an education just to be around you know these people. Um, but I, one of the last things I did was. Um, Desert Island Discs, and I had to help pick out the discs and um, with whoever the, the guest was going to be. And uh, the guest I had that day was Gregory Peck. Oh, hello. And, and, um, and, <laughs> and so, of course, I was hugely starstruck because he was one of my mum's absolute, you know, film idols. Mm. And um, he was picking out mostly classical stuff, but he, I remember he did pick out New York, New York by Frank Sinatra, which was not coincidence because my dad massive. Sinatra was played in my house constantly. Mm. Sinatra, Nat King Cole, uh, all these people, it's brilliant stuff. So, uh, that, so that was a joy. Yeah. <laughs> Standing alongside this, this guy picking out records. Nice man. Lovely. 
it was it was charming, absolutely charming. That was, uh, I think I was probably too in awe to <laughs> to take it. That was, I was literally starstruck. I just thought, oh, oh, would you like this one? And I was very oh. subservient, and you know, I was yeah, terrific. <laughs> so, did what three years in radio? And then yeah, it was about two, nearly three years. Yeah. yeah. So, so what happened? Did you? How did you make the transition from radio across to television? Well, of course, there was no email, internet, or job applications, online stuff. Then you had notice boards. There were notice boards all around the BBC. With um, and every week, these notice boards would change. There'd be a list of internal applications, and one of them came up one way. I used to scan them just to see what was, you know, what, what the options were. What could have done but um um this thing came on the board it was called vision mixers training and i looked at what's a vision that's a vision mixer turns out the vision mixer for those that are listening that don't know the vision mixer is the guy that switches between the cameras that you see that come up on your telly so you know in other words if there's you can have a show that's anything between three four five or even on big shows 15 20 cameras and somebody is switching between those cameras, ostensibly to the deck director's uh, selection, but as often as not, sometimes on a certain types of show, mm. the vision mixer is allowed to sort of get on with it and do their own thing. And I think, I'm sure you've had a vision mixer on here before, so they've explained that. But um, so, yes, I, long story short, I got it. I, I got this training scheme. So there I was on now doing another training scheme within the BBC to learn how to operate these vision mixing. Uh, desks or control mm. desks yeah and and um, once again um because i know a few vision mixers yeah that is uh, once again a phenomenally responsible job i mean it, it puts me in mind of specialist nurses knowing more about that area of medicine than the actual doctors they're working for uh, that's how I always think of a vision mixer. And um, as I'm sure when we come to your time as a director, when the vision mixer says to you, oh, if that's what you want, <laughs> it always makes you think, mm, can we have another look at it, please? <laughs> so as you're on this vision mixer course, how many people would be yeah. on the course then? Um, I think there was four, four or five at a time they used to do, because yeah. because it obviously involved quite a lot. Of, but it was yeah, four of us, I think. Yeah. And what sort of shows did they put you on to tend to, to kick off in those yeah, early the days? First, yeah, well, of course, they can't drop you in on anything too uh, high end and high budget. So but the beauty of the beauty of doing all these things at the BBC back then, of course, is the breadth of, of, of programming they had. Everything from obviously news and current affairs, and you've got children's programs, you had um, education programs and all the way up through uh, entertainment and, and situation comedies and variety shows and, and all the rest of it. So the obvious thing when you're the rookie vision mixer was you put you were put on things like Jack and Ori, which is basically a one person to camera with uh, another camera on a load of captions. So you're cutting between these two or three cameras. The other one was, which was always made me chuckle, was at Open University, which was done at o Alexandra Palace in those days. So we were sent up to Alexandra Palace and um and there'd be two or three cameras there'd be a guy standing next to a board um and then you'd have his shot and then you'd have another camera pointing at the board and as he pointed to the board you had to cut to the board and then you cut back i mean if yeah, that's how you you learned the grammar of it i remember the open university that was the, the, my most abiding memory was the sleeveless jumpers and beards i'll be honest so that was uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was quite a lot of those um, but then to be fair it was sort of late 70s yeah early 80s <laughs> and, and, and to talk technical uh there's a thing called the bbc mixer desk which was i'm, I'm right i understand it was actually built designed and built by bbc engineers this particular mixing desk the vision mixing the the, the original vision mixing desk yes it was um it was quite a construction because as opposed to now, which is like a, a thing with loads and loads of rows of buttons, mm. this thing had these enormous <laughs> kind of clunky sliders and, and buttons that you pressed and then you had this fader that you flicked up and then it overrid the button. And 
and you actually physically mix the faders a bit like you had on a, you have on a sound desk. Mm. But it was, I guess they must. It's, they, 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 I'm assuming they've kept one in a museum somewhere. I'm sure. I would say that, um, that uh, on a long show that the vision mixer had been clanking away for two and a half hours. I would say, yeah, it, away. It, yeah, it actually had this click which helped people actually um, because they could hear the click going down the talkback mic. So cameraman on the floor heard you click as you switched from one camera to another. Yeah. Um, of course, when the new desk came out, they they didn't have that, and it was actually through people from work. Yeah. Uh, when 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 they yeah, interested that one. And now, technologically, technically and technologically, uh, uh, like I know what I'm talking about now. Those Grass Valley mixers, they are a blur of buttons and different coloured lights. In fact, I'm sure they used the Grass Valley mixer in the first Star Wars film when the when the Death Star was powering up powering up his Death Ray cut to uh, the fader on a Grass Valley mixer, as if that was yes. years in the, in the, in the you, science fiction past. You see vision mixing desks quite a lot in science or fiction type of movies. You often get that close up with a hand coming in and mm. pressing lots of colour buttons. And yeah, yeah, it's quite, <laughs> they pop up. So once you've done your training at the BBC as a vision mixer, then you're, I guess you're rostered on to more high-profile shows. Yeah, I mean, well, initially, you're, you're, as, as well as doing the, the, the kids' shows and the, uh, the Open University, you were also like a number two. Sometimes you'd have you know, news and current affairs in particular and sport. There was often two of us. You'd have one who was cutting the sources. You'd have another one who was feeding screens and setting up things for down-the-line interviews. Um, I should mention it was this all particularly poignant. The, my first day, um, I was scheduled to do uh, a program called Nationwide, which the Nationwide back in the day was the kind of the, the current affairs program that followed the 6 o'clock news. So it was on at 6.30, 7 o'clock, a bit like the one show is now, mm. but it was much more formal and it was... You know, there was lots of, unless you Frank Boff was a, was a host, Sue Lawley, uh, Hugh, um, I name Hugh. There was, anyway, some brilliant presenters on that. Um, I was driving in to the BBC on um, December the 9th, 1980. It was the morning of December the 9th, 1980. And I switched on the car radio and the news came on that the night before, the 8th of December, 1980, John Lennon had been shot. And it was an extraordinary experience because I was overwhelmed with emotion that this um, just childhood musical hero had been taken from us mm. so young. So that was the first thing I'm driving and trying to, uh, to pull over for a bit. And only as I was arriving at the BBC to do Nationwide did it actually hit me that I was about to work on a programme where we were going to be talking about this live yeah. for the entire programme. It, it, it occurred to me kind of late. And um, anyway, I, it was what it was. And it, you know, there was interviews all over the place with people in New York, people in mm. in the UK and um one of those days you just you just never forget and um i got through it it was technically quite tricky and i was still the rookie yeah. um but it was quite a day yeah i suppose what it does it focuses your mind pool doesn't it on actually the the significance of the job you're doing because suddenly you're involved in something quite so newsworthy or you're presenting something that's quite yeah. quite so internationally uh, important yeah, yeah. I think everyone was. Whenever you you're involved on something like that, I guess on a news or current affairs, and something massive has happened like that, then yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone just wants to do the best they can to 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 tell the story. Yeah. So, did you uh, by design uh, move into light entertainment programming, or? Uh, as is apparently your career so far, you just <laughs> yeah, I believe, fell amongst I, it. 
I come back to that go with the flow. I honestly go with the flow thing. Obviously, the senior visa mixers at the time, and they were all brilliant. They allowed me to sit behind and shadow them on many occasions. You know, Bill Morton, Shirley Coward, Hilary Bregor, Hilary West, Angela Wilson. If they're out there, mm. bless you. Thank you so much. Mm. And, um, and of course, they were doing John Barclay. Yeah. Wow. And um, Bill Morton. Yeah, if I didn't mention his name, oh, who of course went on to direct as well, fantastic director. Yes. And uh, so, of course, they were, they were the ones doing all the big shows. But of course, now and again, they either were on holiday or they were off sick or something yes. happened. And so, you occasionally someone like myself got an opportunity to do a kind of quite high end BBC entertainment show. Um, one of the early ones was Val Dunican. With a director producer called Yvonne Littlewood. Yvonne, wonderful. Yeah. Vision mixing that. And I have to say, my mum was thrilled mm. because, not because I was vision mixing. She saw my name appear at the end. It was the fact that my name came up at the end of a program that featured Keith Harris and Orville Duck. <laughs> Excellent. And it, it was to this day, I think, her proudest moment of that. <laughs> She, she she didn't live to see much of my directing career to be fair my dad didn't see anything he passed away just before and so um at least she got to see that moment yeah thank god and, and thank god Val come with keith harris fantastic it didn't get better but but you yeah. you mentioned yvonne littlewood one of the great one of the legendary names of bbc television what other fantastic legends uh, sitting up in the gallery, producer directors, did you work with uh, the BBC during that part of your career? Well, uh, well, loads really, but two others come to mind in any in no particular order. And I, another opportunity that came when John Barclay couldn't vision mix a big show with a guy called Stuart Morris, mm. who was just a renowned you know, entertainment producer director. He did loads of big variety shows, Top of the Pops, all this uh, fantastic. And larger the life character in every sense. It was, mm. it was, uh, yeah. it was, a, it was quite a day sitting next to him. But I got invited. Well, not, not I was told I was scheduled to do a show with Cliff Richard at the Royal Albert Hall with Stuart Morris directing. So it's a biggie. It was a big one. It was a big one for me. Um, and you know, you go in there, you got. Well, I guess I guess we had nine or ten cameras on it, um, which was quite a lot mm. in those days. And, and of course, the trucks were tiny then. The out, the outside broadcast trucks. Um, if anyone's ever seen the modern day ones, which have these huge expanding sides. This was this was the tiniest thing ever. And I'm squished in there next to Stuart, who was had a very sort of a flamboyant way of directing everybody, and um, was literally cheek by jowl. Stuart, <laughs> literally, our knees and shoulders were touching for the best part of a sixteen hour day. But I survived it. And at the end, he slapped me on the back and said, oh, well done, young, and or something like that. And uh, I, I, I got away with it. And But I got the bug there. And um, and then I was, something else happened as well with, this is 1984 now. Uh, I was asked to vision mix one of the two Ronnie's Christmas shows with Marcus Planting. And Marcus Planting was a senior producer director at the BBC at the time. But what I didn't know was that he was about to leave and become head of entertainment and, and beyond at LWT. So I did this Christmas show with him, with uh, the two Ronnies. Um, I remember they were dressed as elves at one point, <laughs> <laughs> wandering around a, a sort of a huge ice rink pond in the middle of TC1 at the television center. Yeah. And, um, and it was literally the following spring of 85, that they needed a, a senior vision mixer at LWT. And partly as a result of Marcus himself had gone had just gone there himself. I got the I got the job there. So I moved from the BBC to effectively ITV, or but this was London weekend television as it was yeah. on the South Bank. Well big jump though leaving a, a kind of a secure organization like the Beeb and then jumping ship to um to ITV, I would have thought. It, it was a big jump, although at least LWT in itself was a, a sizable company, although nothing compared with the BBC then. It's huge. Mm. Uh, um, but at least it was still a very solid job. And um, 
and it, but smaller numbers of numbers of people. What was quite nice about going to OWT is that you got to know everyone got to know you, mm. what you did quite quickly, and you got to know them quite quickly because there wasn't so many uh, people involved. Yeah, um, I, ima- were, I, I, I imagine in that um, uh, what was that office that used to schedule everyone at the BBC, the cameramen, the sound guys, the vision mixers. Oh yeah. Uh, I forgot yeah. what it was called, but um, yeah. th- that was quite a family. So all the cr- all the production crews knew one another. Uh, yeah. But London Weekend be a much tighter unit, and so it was. I mean, at the BBC, there was something like between twenty and thirty vision mixers then. Wow. And at, I, at LWT, there was six or seven of us when I yeah. when I joined. Yeah. And quite soon, there was less than that because they were starting to most people starting to be laid off or go freelance or whatever. Sure. So, I suppose you know. Really, Paul, given the breadth of stuff that you started working on as a vision mixer at the BBC, the, this, that breadth of training that in those days the BBC gave and doesn't give now must have been, I guess you're the last generation to enjoy that, that particular standard of training, aren't you? I probably am. I, I, I really don't know mm. these days what people do for training. Um, of course, what didn't exist then was that there wasn't courses like TV film production courses at university oh, or yeah. media studies or any of that. It didn't exist. You either did like I did a science degree or you did an art, you did history, economics, English, whatever. Yeah. Or, you know, or you did physics, chemistry, maths, engineering. There were none of these other types of courses. I think some, I don't know what the polytechnics used to do then, but there wasn't so much anywhere near the, the, the breadth of stuff that you could do at uni as mm. there is now but in terms of actual on the job training yeah I, I think that's largely gone and, yeah um you you literally have to attach yourself to somebody or some small company and and hopefully someone will guide you through mm. you know, how things work and take you under their wing yeah yeah, yeah. that's uh, london weekend uh under the auspices of david bell and subsequent heads of entertainment, including Marcus Plantin, it was yeah. very, very Ellie orientated. It was the kind of the BBC golden era, is it London Weekend, ITV golden era of entertainment. Yeah. So, what kind of shows were you? Did you find yourself working on as a vision mixer at LWT? Yeah, I mean, I went. I was actually obviously taken across there because they needed another Ellie vision mixer. And of course, for me, it was a jump up because it meant rather than doing entertainment now and again, I was suddenly doing it all the time. So. Shows that come to mind, Blind Date, mm. Surprise, Surprise, Child's Play. That was a show with Michael Aspel with clips of young kids. Cannonball. There was all the live from, like, Life in the Palladium, Life in Piccadilly, all these big variety shows. That you mentioned David, yeah. Bell. David Bell was often producing them, directed by usually Alistair McMillan and mm-hmm. other big early. And there was various chat shows. There was Michael Aspel's chat show. There was Clive James's chat show, Clive Anderson. I did a sitcom. I remember there was some sitcoms. There was a thing called The Two of Us that Marcus directed and produced with Nicholas Linhurst. Mm-hmm. There were some award ceremonies, of course, I used to do then. Um, <clears throat> that was always um, quite scary, trying to get them things right. Yeah. Um, but also, Paul, you know, I would contend that each of those disciplines requires a different vision mixing style. Cutting a sitcom yeah. is completely different to covering an awards show uh, and covering a live from Her Majesty's. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think the thing about multi-camera directing is that every single or, or visual mixing, both equally the same. Every show has its own idiosyncrasies. It has its own camera structure. Uh, it, it its own setup. You know the way you shoot it, the w- whether you're cross shooting it or whether you're doing it with handheld cameras, and whether you're doing it w- with jibs and a combination of different types of cameras in different positions. I think I feel very blessed. I, I had this quite broad cross section of of programming that came at me from from my mid twenties right through into my early thirties, and so yeah, the only, uh, yeah. I mean, of course, and then what happened while I was at LWT, the the independence grew. One of the first big and Channel Four in particular, of course, you know, um, uh, and that they brought a show to LWT for an, uh, as an independent for Channel Four, of course, called Saturday Night Live, mm. which was Friday Night Live, which was the big um, comedy and variety show, but with all these uh, kind of new or were called then alternative comedians, but we now know them all as um, Paul Merton, Joe Brand, mm. Julian Clary. 
uh, it was Hunter and Doherty. There was um, a relatively unknown Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie that wow. were on Saturday yeah. Night Live, and a whole load of um, Harry Enfield's. Um, uh, and Ben Elton. I've, and ben course, Elton, the host, of course. I know you, recently, I, I'm glad to see, yeah, they, they did, a, they, they brought it back, didn't they? It, it was hmm. on, it was on recently, a new updated version, and uh, whether yeah. that will become a series or not, I don't know. I hope it does. Once but that was, that was massive. That was a live show. Yeah, with the great Jeffrey Posner directing. And Jeff, I was kind of come to Jeff. I, I mean, Jeff Posner's just wonderful, fun and brilliant music and comedy director yeah. i um it was a joy being next to him and and i can only i mean i learned so much from him as well and ian hamilton did did a lot of them as well yes um so yeah it's just an opportunity i realize this is becoming increasingly an opportunity to show my gratitude to the, the people that i've sat next to and have hung out with and yeah, yeah. it's all you, you can't you cannot put a price on what you learn when you're working with these guys. With those guys who are... And women, and girls, I should say. Sure. Really, but, brilliant ones in there. Oh, God. So and also brilliant female vision mixers. I yeah. Say, yeah, yeah. No, that was... They're, they're, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think in the vision mixing world, it was uh, pretty equal in terms of mm. uh, male to female, I, I, I would say. Yeah, sure. So you're sitting next to Jeffrey Posner and Ian Hamilton and Marcus yeah. Blantin and various other directors, Alistair, the great Alistair McMillan. And yeah. you're looking across, do you think? No, oh, John know. Gorman, I should say John Gorman. Oh, I worked oh. with him a lot on Surprise, Surprise and Blind Day. He did all of those. Uh, all those wonderful shows. Wonderful guy, yeah. Isn't that yeah. right, Poppet? <laughs> Poppet. Everyone was Poppet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. you looked across and you think, oh, I reckon I could do that. Is that what you thought? Well, I... I, it's just it's gonna sound people aren't gonna believe me, but no, it's not what I thought. Ah. It's just not what I thought. I again I was sitting, I was perfectly happy, pressing the buttons, trying to get the right pictures on the screen and doing what the directors and producers ideally wanted to make the show as, as good as possible. And once again, I go with the flow, it came to me. Um we were doing I was doing a cannon and ball show with Marcus Plantin. And it was at the end of one of them, we were in the bar and he said to me, have you ever thought about directing? And I said, not really. And he said, well, you're sort of almost doing it. <laughs> you, 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 you know, when I'm with you, you, you just know where you're going, you know what you're doing. And I'm, he was looking for some new young directors to step into the world of entertainment at LWT. And he gave me an attachment, uh, so like a six, nine month attachment to go out and shadow some directors properly with a view to directing, not let go of the vision mixing hat and yeah. think about the whole, putting the whole thing together. And yeah, so I did. I, I, I thought, you know what, let's, let's go, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, yeah. Once again, the opportunity presents itself when you grab it with both it, hands. Um, yeah. And it's a bit, it is a, you're not just sliding from one, one chair across to another, are you? It's a huge responsibility. I remember Bill Morton saying that when he did his first directing job, so he sat in the chair and looked around and nothing was happening. He thought, oh, I'd better say something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I resonate with that. Mm. Absolutely. I, I would have done that at the beginning. But I know I did do that. Yeah. Because the direct, you're so used to just sitting there quietly, pressing, saying very little, occasionally just stepping into a camera, oh, I'm on you three or coming to five. Yes. But you didn't, you were never, ever directing. You, you never took over. Mm. Um. And so, yeah, I did that to start with. I probably didn't say enough. And people going, hey, is anyone directing this show? Who's out there? Where is, where is he? Do you think that as well as having an – well, yeah, okay. I, but as a vision mixer, let's go down this route for a minute. As a vision mixer, you had pretty good – better than most idea of what cuts with what and how to, how to shoot a show. So did your time as a vision mixer inform your – career as a director because you knew what was possible yeah that for sure that's that's definite and there's been a few vision mixers who stepped across to become directors down the years there's been a uh, you know a few people that have done the same as i did hmm. um and it's a great way because you can't you, you absolutely know the grammar of how to shoot different genres of show hmm. you, you can't not be a vision mixer for you know like i was for 10 years or so and not 
pick up exactly a good way of doing this. That's not to say you don't get caught. There's always going to be a new show with some new structure and you maybe don't quite get it right first time. Yeah. Um, and then you, you know, you live and learn and mm. et cetera. But well, one thing I'd, I'd like to know, it just occurred to me. So yeah. when you moved from that BBC environment to the LWT environment, was there much of a, apart from the, the fact that it's a smaller scale at London weekend, was there much of a cultural difference or is television much the same, whatever channel you're working for? I don't think there was a huge cultural difference. No, I think I, I fitted in quite quickly. The only thing with LWT, because it was a weekend franchise, it was much, much more entertainment focused. Yeah, they did have World of Sport. They had the Dickie Davis thing mm. on a Saturday and I'd been used to doing grandstand. But even that was similar. They, was, they were a little bit more laid back the whole Dickie Davis thing with the wrestling at four o'clock in the afternoon. It was a bit different to the, the um uh, but fundamentally the, it, it, the the vibe was the same. Yeah. And the grammar's the same, I guess. The grammar's the same. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you're directing at London Weekend now. What sort of shows would you have worked on there in, in the director's seat? Yeah, well initially um I was on this attachment so I went out on the um, Beatles about. I was filming some of the Beatles little films. These poor people being <laughs> tortured, and and then there was um, uh, and I got sent on some of these blind date trips because in those days, whoever picked you know the guy picked one of the three girls or the girl picked one of the three boys, they then got sent on a little date. Their date was often a, like a, a little trip, uh, and that could take a, a, anything from one day to three or four days so the uh the creme de la creme i think was they got to go to dubai and oh. i went to dubai with this couple um and a and a you know cameraman sound man and they got to you know go on a in a desert on a you know on a jeep and whatever you do in dubai yeah <laughs> and then uh the other end of the scale one couple their prize well, if one could call it that, was sheep shearing in the Cairngorms. <laughs> and I stress, it was February. Um, <laughs> Nightmare. And it was just horrific. And and, and this poor couple, because they hated each other. <laughs> and, and, anyway, I, I, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I got to do these sort of things. And, um, um, and of course, Blind Day itself. Yeah. Um, and various Ellie shows that, that came my way. But it was fairly short-lived, my directing there, because oh. what happened was the satellite channels began, um, which was 1990 now. So mm -hmm. I'd been vision mixing there four to five years and then doing this little attachment. But um, Paul Jackson, who'd been head of entertainment, they're working with Marcus, Paul Jackson set up, he left LWT at that point, set up uh, a company, I think it was called Noel Gay Television, Noel mm -hmm. Gay Television, yeah. Yeah. and it was in Tottenham Court Road, and he had uh, um, the, I think what you would call it, a contract to produce a load of comedy programs for what was then called BSB, because uh, for those that remember 1990, two rival satellite companies started up at the same time one was bsb and they had a what was called a square aerial it was oh. a square aerial to pick up the satellite signal oh. the other one is now much more well known and very established was, was um sky um which had the round uh, uh dish uh but i um worked i went with paul jackson's company to make these lovely uh, comedy shows for BSB and we work flat out something like five six days a week for about six to nine months um earn a lot of money in a very short space of time also I'm producing some pretty good shows if I remember and right. there was some great stuff I did a thing that actually of course then stood me in good stead for what I went on to do after there was a there was a program on every day called up your news up your news mm -hmm. and it was a little comedy sketch show it was written literally every day and the sketches we would block them and i would direct them and we put them out it went out live 
that evening. Um, but it was always the, the biggest line about when an actor or an actress asks you, so what's my motivation in this sketch? Well, your motivation is we're on the telly at nine o'clock tonight. So let's saw it. <laughs> Um, so yeah. anyway, so it was, um, yeah. So there we worked flat out on this. It was brilliant, brilliant uh, stuff. And then one day we walked into the office and we'd all been sacked. And then we flipped on the news and the reason we'd been sacked was Sky had taken over BSB and had now become B Sky B. Ah. So basically the Squirrels were were defunct and no more. I'm, I'm guessing, again, they're probably now museum pieces or... yeah. <laughs> Probably people got plants growing on them now, <laughs> something like that. But but yeah. Um, so then I was, but I by, by to take on that job, I'd gone freelance. So I'd left LWT. So I was now freelance, and I have been ever since. Mm. But suddenly, when B, B Sky B, no, sorry, when BSB British Satellite Broadcasting uh, is yes. no more taken over, what you you made redundant, or you, you just cast aside into the big wide world? No, there's no redundancy. We were all, we were all on freelance contracts, so that it just stopped. It just so it literally went from earning a lot to earning nothing, and it, and it was um, it was the middle of winter, and and I'm, I'm basically uh, well, of course I rang around as many people as I could, and I got I picked started slowly slowly picking up freelance vision mixing jobs. Of course, so I I still had happily that tool to fall back on because you got to remember I was still very much a rookie director, so not known in the certainly not known in the world of freelance entertainment directors at that point. Hmm. So I kind of did a bit of a combination for a few years of, um, of of freelance vision mixing and the odd directing job would come up but it was mostly visual mixing again in the early 90s mm-hmm. until well actually i was i've been working on a few shows for talk back and for hat trick as a vision mixer um uh with hat trick i i, I vision mix some of the uh, drop the dead donkeys um uh and, and they were the most important uh independent and, entertainment uh, production outfits at the time weren't they yeah they were, hat-trick were, were huge well they're still big now but they, 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 they were a huge success back in those early in that time and talk back of course which was smith and jones company and um and uh, uh oh, i can't remember the other ones i worked but i was still doing some sport of course mm-hmm. um I, I remember i was just picking what i just took whatever came along because you know i uh i had a young family then and um trying to pay off a mortgage and suddenly there was no money going. Mm. Doing boxing in Cardiff. Ooh. I did boxing in Cardiff. Have mm. you ever done, if anyone's ever, it's quite a thing doing boxing. Um, every now and again, a cameraman will tell you to, can, I said, Paul, can you stay off camera three for a moment? You're not quite sure. I didn't know why to start with. You take it, so you cut to another camera that's, and then you see a hand come in with a cloth and wipe the, <laughs> Wipe the blood and the the sweat and the saliva off the lens because it, some poor guy's had his face splattered all over his lens. But um, if you can realise that, I don't know whether that still happens or whether they've got slightly more sophisticated uh, camera positions now. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. So any yeah anything. Um, yeah. Let's come uh, back to the directing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, to come back to the directing and is that working with Hattrick? Is that how you managed to find yourself? involved in have i got news for you yeah well i was i've been vision mixing some of them um have i got news for you and then just right out of nowhere i i, I got a call saying that the, the previous director that had been on it had, had moved on and would i be interested in stepping in to do have i got news for you now this was autumn 1995 and of course i jumped at it because it was a hugely high profile show and i but i was aware i remember thinking <laughs> I remember thinking it had actually already been on air five years and it started, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm saying it started in 1990. Yeah. So it had been going five years. And as anyone in television knows, five years is quite a long time in show business. Yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking, oh, well, listen, tell you what, I'll do this autumn and maybe there'll be a, a moment, and maybe I'll get next year. I'll have something on my CV. Um, and I thought, well, even if I get eight, maybe a year and a half out of this, it'll, it'll be a good gig to have done. And um, well, the rest you all know. It's, yeah. I've been doing it on and off ever since, so it's still going. Years. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I've been doing it since 1995, and it's now 2023. So being yeah, so uh, being associated with such a high-profile 
uh, important comedy show. That really, I suppose, gave you even more credibility amongst the the comedy fraternity, comedy producers. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it meant that yeah, your name a bit was on something that was um, top of mainstream. Of course, there were other sister. Uh, sister uh, comedy panel shows that kicked off then. Uh, the other one I did loads of was with Mark Lamar was Never Mind the Buzzcocks. That was for Talkback. Mm. So I did many years where I was actually doing both Have I Got News For You and Have I Got News For You, um, Never Mind the Buzzcocks and Have I Got News For You. And then other things kind of came in off the back of that. Yeah. And, the, and it's, I always think of that era as when comedy became the new rock and roll. Suddenly, it was really hip to be involved in comedy, wasn't it? Yeah, it's it's interesting because those of us of an age, <laughs> we we grew up with you know Walkman and Wise and you know, Frankie Howard, Bob Monkhouse, um, uh, yeah, Tarby and those types. Tarby, of course, all of those. Brucey, of course, and the sort of entertainment type comedians. Mm. But you could count the kind of if you stop most people in the street and said how many comedians do you know, and most people wouldn't be able to sort of tell you more than half a dozen, well, mm. maybe ten tops. But suddenly, stand-up comedy became huge, and and everybody was, um, you know, there was people of all ages going for it. Not, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of uh, guys and girls trying out stand-up. Although mostly it was on sort of late night initially. Mm. Which was why, when Live the Alive at the Apollo kicked off, when I got called initially about that by Open Mic, with, um, and um, they, or it was then the, the the exec of Open Mic was Addison Cresswell. It was his dream that stand-up comedy should be on mainstream telly on BBC One prime time, and that's exactly what happened. And so Live at the Apollo began. Uh, 2005 and i've done i've done them all yeah uh, since 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 then alongside you know have i got news and and the other things that come my way and um so yes in a way live at the apollo then i guess a lot of people a lot of youngsters would have watched it and seen you know the, the nature of some of these great comedians doing their thing on live at the apollo and thinking oh wow well, i'd love to i'd love to get you know, if you were a young comedy performer you're thinking that's where i want to go i want to aim for that and i'm sure some of them looked at it back then in 2005 and have now been on it so yeah, yeah for sure and i guess yeah. you've seen you must have seen dozens and dozens scores of new inverted commas comedians struck their stuff on the apollo and some yeah. i'm sure you think mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but oh boy this person has really got it they're going to go places yeah 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 I mean, yeah, there, there, there's always these sort of standout moments, isn't there, when um, someone you've never seen before comes on and absolutely smashes it, and uh, and there's yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there's some brilliant ones. Because it's a big, I mean, the Hammersmith Apollo is a big old venue, isn't it? It's a barn yes. in place. It's uh, it was what was originally when I when I first went to um, Hammersmith, it was the Odeon. When mm. I was a kid, it was it was it's a twenties it's a it's a twenties Art Deco cinema. Yeah, that's what it is. Which is why it's so wide. It's got this big fan sort of arrangement of audience. It's three thousand. Mm. It's just over three thousand people, I think. Yeah, maybe three and a half thousand, but it's certainly three thousand plus when it's full. And I'm guessing you um, you, we've got a new comedian who's used to playing comedy clubs of oh, I don't know two hundred tops into yeah. little rooms. Suddenly, wow. You know, I guess that's when you really earn your comedy chops and that's when you realise you can do it or you can't really. Yeah, it's a huge, it's a, I think, I think even now for even the comedians, some really good comedians on the circuit that are playing, you know, the, the regular comedy circuit, the sort of comedy store type venues, jonglers and all the ones all over the country. There's lots mm -hmm. of brilliant comedy. I used to go, I used to live in Twickenham, I used to go to this place called the Bearcat. The Bearcat Club was at the back of the Turk's Head pub. And I mean, I used to see people like Harry Hill, Marcus Brigstock, all sorts of fantastic people in there. Al Murray was in there. Um, mm. And yeah, I mean, uh, but it's suddenly, if, so, if, if you suddenly get a call from Live at the Apollo to say, hey, we're thinking of putting you on, um, mm. <laughs> on BBC One at prime time in front of 3,000 people, 
That's quite a move. That's your big and, break. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So having watched all the comics, you've you've seen the comics, as you've just said, working in those intimate comedy club rooms, and you've yeah. seen them strut their stuff on, okay, the Palladium, the Palladium shows that you did, and, yeah. and at the Apollo. Um, did you ever get a hankering to think from a performer's point of view now, and we'll get on to your music in a moment. Okay. okay. Did you ever think, I'll have a go at stand-up comedy rather than becoming a, a musician? <laughs> I'm much too much of a coward. I, I I would I would look at some of these. I mean, listen. I mean, I've done some sort of what we used to call DVD shoots that spun off the back of Apollo. I've done them with Jack D, Jason Manford, many of them. Mm. Frank Skinner, John Bishop, of course. I've done loads yeah. with him. I was I directed his first break at, at the Apollo. I remember it was a good example of how it's just a massive turning point for him. Lee mm. Mack, Cause Dara O'Brien, Sean Locke, Preston. Mm. God, God bless him. him, yeah. Al Murray, uh, some Jimmy Cars, uh, um, Russell Brand. I did a show with him. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, when you're working, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is when you're working with them, there's not a cell in your body thinks, <laughs> I can do this. Fair <laughs> yes, no, fair no way. Absolutely. Um, I have actually the only nearest I've got to it was a local was actually very recently, because apart from being a songwriter and and and, uh, and, and doing this sort of tribute show, which we'll come to in a moment, but the mm. um, I do write my own sort of little folky, spiritually kind of songs. But now and again, I was working for a local comedy sketch show where I used to live in Sussex, mm. and I was writing these satirical tunes, and so I did end up. Uh, doing a little bit of my own, I did. I have done one stand-up set that featured two song parodies. As um, as you mentioned at the beginning, I now live in Spain, so I I, I have observed many of my uh, compatriots in a place that's about ten miles down the road from us called Benidorm, mm. and um, so I adapted Sting's Englishman in New York to an Englishman in Benidorm. Oh, smart! Yeah, and. Uh, and I they did that, and then I did a song about getting old, um, with a little bit of so I have done a 10 minute stand up set, but I would never. And it went, I have to say, I, I was absolutely terrified going on, but actually, because I wisely chose to have a guitar around my neck as a crutch, yes, I sort of got away with it, I think. And um, yes. the feedback was very kind, yeah, good. <laughs> I suppose it's that the guitar is like a psychological barrier between you and the audience. I sort of yeah, and and I back myself that whatever happens, I can probably, I can ping my way through these tunes quite well, which effectively gave me a yeah, my crutch and my cues to 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 to, to get through it without. So you're doing a lot stumble. more music now. Um, how yeah. did that come about? Did you did you go out as a solo? Did you put the band yeah. together? So the music career has been a weird one because it's run alongside the television. I wasn't, as I said, I wasn't brave with it when I was young at all, but it came back after my mum and dad both passed away in um, in the mid-90s. Um, and they were about the age I am now. And I started doing these, I got a, 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 some mates together and we did a little band. It was a kind of a cancer charity band, basically. And then we were doing, it, it, it actually went really well. So we suddenly found ourselves being a full-on function band, playing at places like, you know, those walkabout bars, those Aussie, mm. Aus, the Australian, Australasian, kind of crazy. There was one on Shepherd's Bush Green we used to do, where you've got literally 500 Aussies and Kiwis and South Africans just, just jumping up and down. And, and you just had to hammer your way through uh Long train running, twist and shout, living on a prayer, Mustang Sally, walking on sunshine, blah, blah, blah. And you, you just crashed through this, um, loved every minute of it. And there we were at three o'clock in the morning. You just get paid, six of us, we got paid 400 quid for doing that. And mm. um, that's that's between us, I mean. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but great fun. And then, um, uh, so yeah, there was this function band going on. And then for a while, I was also because I quite love Latin music and I got quite into Latin and jazz and stuff. And I found myself at a world music festival playing with a band called Mundo Pequeno. Hmm. So my, my, actually I'm going to share this little story quickly. Uh, one claim to fame is I was playing with Mundo Pequeno and we were playing Cuban music and Latin music, Brazilian music. And then the organizer 
asked us just before we went on, said, uh, do you know Walking on Sunshine by Katrina? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, we've played it at functions, you know, parties hundreds of times. He said, well, she's here. And I went, what do you mean? She said, I said, Katrina, she's here. And she's like a friend of the, can you play it now and be her guest band? She's going to come on as a guest and sing it. So there, so there I was, suddenly found myself playing, and, and she was standing at the side of the stage. I see a DJ run on with a mic and said, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a special guest singing with Munda Bikenya. We've got Katrina with a smash hit song, Walking on Sunshine. So I just started doing the riff, you know, ching, 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 and it leapt into it. And it was a very out-of-body experience because, it was, you know, we were playing Chan Chan by the Buena Vista Social Club at one yes. minute. And Muscanada. And then started <laughs> up playing this and with the actual Katrina. And you're um, song contest winner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was our last person that won it. Anyway, so that was a, that was the only massive claim to fame as a musician, I would probably say. Um but this became but what I'm doing now, I had just started putting together before the um the pandemic. Mm. And it, it I just woke up with this one day thinking I've loved all these years, the songs of that year when I was first learning to play an acoustic guitar, songs of James Taylor, Carol King, Simon Garfunkel, Joni Mitchell, of course, it's just surely one of the most extraordinary singer-songwriters ever. Um, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, David Crosby, just literally passed away a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago um, in this the run coming up of course i will uh, a little special mention for david crosby in that show mm. and various others along the way there was a band called america a huge hit the lovely song horse with no name everyone mm. remembers bread another acoustic bass band big big hits both sides of the atlantic and a few others the birds mm. carly simon so yeah, there's shows. There's this fantastic West End show, as you know, about Carol King or Beautiful. There are other shows that feature the music, Simon Garfunkel, obviously. But I just realised that no one had really kind of put this whole thing together in one, encapsulated that whole era, late mm-hmm. 60s into early 70s, the, that sort of counterculture to the Vietnam War that was, and of course contained right in the middle of there, is the Woodstock Festival, which was August 1969. Yeah. Um, so that there's a feature about that in it as well. So it's a it's a show with about thirty songs. It's two fifty minute parts with an interval, um, and then along the way there's little stories that set up the songs. Not long, and I mean, it, it, don't get me wrong, it's not blathering all the way through. The, it's ninety percent music, right, and ten percent. Um, a little bit of musicology narrative yeah. with images on the screen behind me. So I'm playing the guitar, I'm hosting, I'm singing quite a fair few of the songs and I've got a laptop alongside me where I'm switching a PowerPoint with Ooh. images on it. Blimey. So it's quite a responsibility. And I'm, 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 as it's your baby, I would imagine yes. you're entirely responsible for the entire production. Um, I'm basically it, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I am the, the host, the, the kind of the main. Also, I have a, I have the lovely Sophie Langham with me, who's singing the, the, the Carol King, Joni Mitchell, Carly Simon songs. We, but there's three or four of us sing. Actually, we do all that. Lots of harmonies. Of course, a lot of these songs harmonies were key on a lot of these tunes. Um, so, but yeah, I am, if you like, producer, frontman, guitarist, singer, graphic designer, PowerPoint <laughs> operator, marketing <laughs> manager. Um, and and as I say, and that list of skills that I've just given, I'm actually only good about one or two of them. The rest I'm pretty rubbish at. As I've <laughs> so I'm having I'm having to learn the other ones because I using the world of television, I've usually got an army of people doing all that for you. Yeah, but because it's yeah. a low budget show, I'm kind of taking it all on myself. Yeah. So you're on the road at the end of March. Um, yeah. Where can we Where can we see you on the green? Well, if you're London based. Uh, first of all, the, uh, the first show is um, the last day of March. It's the 31st of March at the lovely Pleasance in Islington, which anyone in the comedy world, of course, is very familiar with the Pleasance because the Pleasance is a venue in London, but it's also a huge number of venues at the Edinburgh Fringe every August. The Pleasance is very well known at mm-hmm. Fringe. 
but I had a word with them when I was there um, and they they were happy to take the show in there as a bit of a, a it's a it's a bit um a bit of a random uh, thing for them to have on there but uh, I'm pretty sure it will work well we just need to get some more people in mm-hmm. the other shows are selling well the next one's sold out actually the one in Barnes but please yeah please ring um ring up the Pleasance and um and it's a lovely cabaret venue actually because you can sit there with a drink at the table and watch the show and uh, and sing along where you there's it's often a bit of singing goes on with the show yeah you can imagine with the choruses in particular oh gosh uh, what i'll do is I'll, I'll list in the in the uh in the preamble that accompanies this podcast i'll, I'll list all the venues you're going to be playing yeah uh, yeah because there's the 10 there you'll be I mean, all over the place in the south you're in bath and but we're going to bath we're going to bath we're going to isha in surrey uh, there's a there's like a, a club in North London, Southgate. Uh, mm. There's a lovely Cryer Arts in Carshalton. These are now into May. The Checker Mead in East Grinstead. I used to live near there, so I, I know that place well. Mm. And then and there's a, a couple in July at Wickham, Wickham Arts Centre and the Hazlitt in Maidstone. Mm-hmm. And then in autumn, there'll be more. I know, we, I know we're going to Winchester on September the 9th as well. So anyone who's south or southwest or you know yeah um and, 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 and you'll be able me, to find us keep me apprised of the dates you're doing because i'll i'll continue to put them up on the on the website yeah. that kind of oh, that, that would be lovely thank you i'll, I'll do that yeah. your career has been fantastic uh it, really if you look at it as we've chatted over the last hour i mean working in okay physics degree you didn't become nikola tesla ah who cares <laughs> but suddenly you're working in sound effects and dramas and then you're you're working in television you and your vision mixing and then you're directing and now you're producing your own musical stuff yours has been a fantastic career so far hasn't it i i my mantra these days is gratitude Honestly, that's not the only the, the, the main word that comes to mind is that. And um, actually, I'll leave us on a poignant note. And one of the reasons gratitude is is a key thing is that I did, in fact, catch the COVID very early on and um, right in the end of March. And I was very sick and I ended up in a hospital just down the road here. And, and I was in Spain and uh, and it was a harrowing time. <laughs> There's uh, what can I say? There's no I, I. I just want to mention it because it's it's apart from everything you've just mentioned or what we've been talking about about my career. Without your health, you have nothing. You have nothing. Yeah. And and you can't do any of these wonderful things that I've been blessed to do. And and it appears I'm not done yet. Mm. But, but there was there was a few scary days in the hospital in Benidorm when I thought, oh, if this I'm in trouble here and. Yeah. And bless you all the people that sent me messages back then, because I did manage to post once when I was in there mm. and then people saw it. And, and, and uh... it's something like that, Paul, that brings everything into sharp relief. It's sharp focus. Indeed. Yes, yeah. indeed. Good. Paul, thank you for your time. Yours has been a fantastic career, as I said. Uh, everything you've been involved in for the last 40 years, entertaining us on the radio and particularly on television. And now now with your music. Thank you for your time, sir. I do appreciate it. It's been an absolute joy. Thanks for inviting me, Colin. This is, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, I've, I've enjoyed it. My pleasure. Yeah. We have been listening to the multi talented Mr. Paul Wheeler. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Thank you.